Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Mark chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 minutes or less. Now, on days uh, like today, when we're starting something new, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. First thing you probably need to know about the Gospel of Mark is why it's called the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark, or John Mark, as he's sometimes called in the Bible, shows up in the New Testament as an assistant to the apostles. He was an early traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and then he was later assigned or shows up in partner with the Apostle Peter as his scribe and interpreter, and that is how he got his name on the gospel. He wrote down Peter's recollection of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, church historians have generally assumed that this happened late in Peter's life, probably after he was arrested uh, in the persecution under Nero, And when the church began to realize that we don't want to lose Peter's recollections of Christ, and we don't know how this is going to turn out with him in prison. So this gospel uh, is, you know, associated with the imprisonment of Peter. You know, you can almost imagine that Peter was sort of speaking to Mark through the bars of his prison. You know, we don't know that that happened, obviously, but it's interesting to, to realize that this gospel comes out of the flames of Christian persecution. So, for example, Papias uh, in AD 130, so, you know, really just one lifetime after the events of the gospel, says this. It says, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things said or done by the Lord. So, Papias says, it's not like Mark just wrote a travel log of the apostle Peter. He, he exercised some creativity and discernment in how he arranged the material, but the material goes back to Peter. Now, you have to remember that Peter was a fisherman, so he probably would have been able to speak Aramaic and Hebrew, and he would have had a smattering of Greek uh, because he was an international businessman, fished from the Sea of Galilee, went all across the Roman Empire, and Greek was sort of the language of commerce. But in those days, if you were going to write something that you wanted to be widely read, then you hired a scribe. You hired somebody who had been trained, who had professional-grade Greek. And Mark appears to have come from a wealthy family. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, the whole church is meeting in his mother's house. So obviously, it was a big house, and he came from a well-to-do family, and he had the necessary education and training to serve as the Apostle Peter's scribe. Therefore, it's probably best to think of the Gospel of Mark as basically the Gospel of Peter as written and arranged by Mark. should probably also say something about the word gospel. That's not a, a word we use all the time, and when we use it, we use it in, in a couple of different ways. Sometimes scholars even say that Mark invented the gospel. Now, he doesn't. they don't mean that Mark invented the events of the gospel or the substance of the gospel. They, they mean that Mark invented the genre of of gospel. Mark wrote first, and he wrote in a very specific way. It's not a biography. As we mentioned, it's not a travelogue. A gospel is an evangelistic presentation of the life and significance of Jesus. 
Mark wants to convince us. He tells us right off the top in verse 1. Mark wants to convince us that Jesus is God and that he is the Savior that we need. And so that that's the guiding principle in how he chooses and arranges the stories that he decides to share. Uh, it tells you why he doesn't include the birth narratives or childhood narratives of Jesus, because he's, he's not walking us through every detail of Jesus' life. He is hitting on the events that he thinks best make the case for the divinity and for the work and for the significance of Jesus Christ. Now, that, in a sense, then, becomes the main point of every story, of every chapter in Mark's gospel. I'm preaching my way through Mark's gospel right now, and I can tell you that the main point of almost any sermon you could preach from the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is God, and he is the Savior that we need, right? And Mark is making that point again and again and again. Now, along the way, Mark says some other stuff as well. He has some secondary points. He's got some things to say about faith and about following and the life of the disciple, but The main point in almost every story is the same. This is a book about Jesus, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. All right, that's enough introduction for now. We'll fill the rest in as we go. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, having given us his thesis right off the top that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Mark begins his story with the character and the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the forerunner that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, in places like Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1, the Bible said that a prophet would come ahead of Messiah, and he would point to Jesus, and he would prepare people for Messiah. Because there's going to be a long period of silence. There's a, there's a pretty decent gap between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. So God says, don't worry, I'll tell you when something interesting is happening. I'll send you a guy, you'll recognize him, he'll look like an Old Testament prophet, and he'll kind of wave those orange cones at the airport, right? And he'll point them towards Jesus. You won't be able to miss him, right? In John's gospel, uh, gospel of John, John the Baptist shows up and he points right at Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John's job was to point and prepare. He does a good job of pointing in in the text that we're just looking at. He says, don't look at me, right? Look at Jesus. He's more important than me. Look at Jesus. And he does a good job of preparing people uh, for Jesus. To prepare people for Jesus, he tells them they ought to repent, right? And that's worth hearing. That's worth understanding. The best way to prepare for this gospel, the best way to prepare to meet Jesus is to repent, It is to understand yourself a sinner in need of a savior. It is to know yourself deceived in need of a teacher. It is to know yourself as lost 
in need of a leader. I would say if, if you're not at that place, you need to pray to get to that place because if you're not at that place, then you won't see Jesus as he is. So re- repenting is still a very good way of preparing for a message about Jesus. All right, let's jump back on the text of verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You can see the entire Trinity in in that little picture. You've got Jesus, obviously, getting baptized. You've got the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus to prepare and empower him for ministry. And then you've got the Father in heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. So obviously, this is a pretty important passage. Now, if you're new to Christianity or just checking it out, it probably would be very helpful to spend a minute or so unpacking that phrase, the Son of God. When we call Jesus the Son of God, we aren't saying that God the Father had relations with the Virgin Mary and and they had Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. Some of our Muslim friends and neighbors have been told that this is what the Bible says. Scholars actually think that it's possible that Muhammad had contact with an early group of heretical Christians, folks who've been kicked out of the Christian movement and were spreading their nonsense around, and Muhammad had contact with them. Because he he seems to know some heretical or Gnostic or outside of orthodoxy groups, and uh, and he and, and these sort of fabrications or these misunderstandings got folded in to early Islam. So it's actually important for you to be able to explain to your Muslim friends and neighbors what the Bible actually says about Jesus and what it doesn't. By calling Jesus Son of God. Uh, we are using a metaphor. It's a theological metaphor, right? It's a, it's a name. It's a way of saying that Jesus is of the Father, right? Same substance, just like any son is of his Father. But it's also a way of saying that Jesus is distinct from the Father. The Son is not the Father. It isn't like God has two hats, a, a father hat that he wears on certain days, and then a son hat that he wears on other days. No, no, no. Jesus is of the father, but he is not the father. It's also a way of saying that Jesus does the father's will. A son, at least in those days, uh, was under his father's authority, and he did what the father told him to do. And Jesus says that he has come to earth to do the father's will. In John 12, for example, he says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So calling Jesus son is a way of saying that Jesus is only saying and doing on the earth what the father told him to say and do. And then lastly, to call Jesus son is to say that he inherits all that belongs to the father. The Bible says that in Hebrews chapter one, verse two. So this is who Jesus is, right? In this picture, we see he's filled with the Holy Spirit, He is of the Father, but he's also distinct from the Father. He says and does what the Father tells him to do, and he will possess all that the Father has promised to give. That's who Jesus is, and that's what it means when the Bible calls him the Son of God. All right, let's go back into the text at verse 12. Well, obviously, I have to begin to move faster here. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. 
Now, another reason that the Bible calls Jesus the Son of God is because he does a bunch of things that Israel was called to do in the Old Testament. There's a sense in which Jesus kind of recapitulates the history of Israel. Everything that Israel did, Jesus does. But instead of failing, he is marvelously successful. Israel was called the Son of God in the Old Testament, but because of their brokenness, because of their sinfulness, they were never able to obey God perfectly, and so they were never able to completely receive and possess and hold on to all the blessings of God. And so we're going to see Jesus recapitulating the history of Israel only without the disobedience. And so that starts here. Israel was taken into the desert for a time of testing. You remember that. But they failed. They grumbled and they sinned. They were ungrateful. They didn't trust Jesus is taken into the desert for a time of testing, but he obeys God perfectly. He's the obedient son who does what the rest of us never could and who will unlock for us all the promised blessings of God. Watch for that. Much more on that later. All right, back into the text at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, that's a summary, obviously. Jesus didn't preach, you know, 30-second sermons. That's a summary. It's a way of saying that's the substance of what Jesus was preaching. And you're going to hear that again and again in Mark's gospel, those kind of summaries. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, repent means to stop trusting in yourself, right? It's to know the truth about yourself and your state. And Jesus is, is saying, you got to know that. That's where it begins, you got to start listening to me. you got to start trusting in me, Jesus says. All right, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Now, Jesus isn't just being cute by telling these fishermen that he's going to make them fishers of men. He's quoting an Old Testament prophecy. In Jeremiah 16, verse 16, God said that he would one day send out hunters and fishers for his people to gather in the scattered people of God. So Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing now. Right? Do you want to be a part of that? And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Because obviously this was a way bigger deal than catching fish. And again, here we see Mark making one of those secondary comments about what it looks like to follow Jesus. He's saying that if you want to follow Jesus, understand this. He's got to be number one. It, it's got to, following Jesus is more important even than your job or your family. That, that's a part of it. Back into the text of verse 21. It says, And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere 
throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, authority is one of the major themes in Mark's gospel. Jesus taught as if he had written the Bible, right? I mean, the the Jews at this time period had all kinds of arguments about what the Old Testament meant. Did it mean this or did it mean that? Or, or, Or should we understand it this way or that way? And Jesus just steps into those arguments and he says, it means this, period. Now, who talks like that, right? Nobody, they never heard anybody talk like that. Jesus talked like that. He, he talked as if he had the authority to interpret and apply God's word. He spoke as if he was God himself, the author of God's word. He spoke with authority. And when he did, strongholds came tumbling down. And that's what we're seeing in the story. Now, verses 29 to 45 are generally understood as three stories with one unifying theme. They're sometimes referred to as sandwich structure, meaning the bit and the meat, the the meat in the middle kind of helps us understand the edges, that, that sort of thing. Let me read it to you, verses 29 to 45. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. She began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through it all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean." And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now those stories give us a bit of a window into Jesus' approach to ministry. They show him determined to preach, right? That's what you see in the center story when Jesus goes off and he prays and he comes out and he says, we got to go, right? I I can't be uh, co-opted into a traveling healing ministry. That's not why I came. We've got to go. We've got to leave. I know there's a long lineup of people waiting to be healed, but we've got to go. I've got to go to other villages. We've got to preach for that is why I came out. So that's, that's the purpose of Jesus. And yet, once again, when he, when he sees some people who are suffering, he responds. And, and, and that's a picture of Jesus. He was, he was focused on preaching the gospel. That was the mission. But he was also constantly responsive to human need. And that's the Jesus way. We're going to see it again and again. He is, he is focused, absolutely. He's on mission, but he is merciful, and he, he overflows the banks That's the Jesus way. There is a purpose, but there is pity. Thanks be to God. 
Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you for